Section 9 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsa Youngstead. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 10, Secondary Sexual Characters of Insects, Part 2. Order Hymenoptera. That inimitable observer, Monsieur Fabre, in describing the habits of Cerceris, a wasp-like insect, remarks that fights frequently ensue between the males for the possession of some particular female, who sits an apparently unconcerned beholder of the struggle for supremacy, and when the victory is decided, quietly flies away in company with the conqueror. Westwood says that the males of one of the sawflies, Tinthridini, have been found fighting together with their mandibles locked. As M. Fabre speaks of the males of Cerceris striving to obtain a particular female, it may be well to bear in mind that insects belonging to this order have the power of recognizing each other after long intervals of time, and are deeply attached. For instance, Pierre Huber, whose accuracy no one doubts, separated some ants, and when, after an interval of four months, they met others which had formerly belonged to the same community, they recognized and caressed one another with their antennae. Had they been strangers, they would have fought together. Again, when two communities engage in a battle, the ants on the same side sometimes attack each other in the general confusion, but they soon perceive their mistake, and the one ant soothes the other. In this order, slight differences in color, according to sex, are common, but conspicuous differences are rare, except in the family of bees. Yet both sexes of certain groups are so brilliantly colored, for instance in crisis, in which vermilion and metallic greens prevail, that we are tempted to attribute the result to sexual selection. In the ichneumonidae, according to Mr. Walsh, the males are almost universally lighter colored than the females. On the other hand, in the tenthridinidae, the males are generally darker than the females. In the Syricidae, the sexes frequently differ, thus the male of Cyrex juvencus is banded with orange, whilst the female is dark purple. But it is difficult to say which sex is the more ornamented. In Trimex columbi, the female is much brighter colored than the male. I am informed by Mr. F. Smith that the male ants of several species are black, the females being testaceous. In the family of bees, especially in the solitary species, as I hear from the same entomologist, the sexes often differ in color. The males are generally the brighter, and in Bombus, as well as in Apophis, much more variable in color than the females. In Anthophora retusa, the male is of a rich fulvous brown, whilst the female is quite black. So are the females of several species of Xylocopa, the males being bright yellow. On the other hand, the females of some species, as of Andrina fulva, are much brighter colored than the males. Such differences in color can hardly be accounted for by the males being defenseless and thus requiring protection, whilst the females are well defended by their stings. H. Mueller, who is particularly attended to the habits of bees, attributes these differences in color in chief part to sexual selection. That bees have a keen perception of color is certain. He says that the males search eagerly and fight for the possession of the females, and he accounts through such contests for the mandibles of the males being in certain species larger than those of the females. In some cases the males are far more numerous than the females, either early in the season or at all times and places, or locally, whereas the females in other cases are apparently in excess. In some species the more beautiful males appear to have been selected by the females, and in others the more beautiful females by the males. Consequently, in certain genera, the males of the several species differ much in appearance, whilst the females are almost indistinguishable. In other genera, the reverse occurs. 
H. Mueller believes that the colours gained by one sex through sexual selection have often been transferred in a variable degree to the other sex, just as the pollen-collecting apparatus of the female has often been transferred to the male, to whom it is absolutely useless. Monsieur Perrier, in his article La Selection Sexuelle d'Après Darwin, without apparently having reflected much on the subject, objects that as the male of social bees are known to be produced from unfertilized ova, they could not transmit new characters to their male offspring. This is an extraordinary objection. A female bee fertilized by a male, which presented some character facilitating the union of the sexes, or rendering him more attractive to the female, would lay eggs which would produce only females, but these young females would next year produce males, and will it be pretended that such males would not inherit the characters of their male grandfathers? To take a case with ordinary animals as nearly parallel as possible, if a female of any white quadruped or bird were crossed by a male of a black breed, and the male and female offspring were paired together, will it be pretended that the grandchildren would not inherit a tendency to blackness from their male grandfather? The acquirement of new characters by the sterile worker bees is a much more difficult case, but I have endeavoured to show in my Origin of Species how these sterile beings are subjected to the power of natural selection. Mutilla europea makes a stridulating noise, and according to Gouraud, both sexes have this power. He attributes the sound to the friction of the third and preceding abdominal segments, and I find that these surfaces are marked with very fine concentric ridges but so is the projecting thoracic collar into which the head articulates, and this collar, when scratched with the point of a needle, emits the proper sound. It is rather surprising that both sexes should have the power of stridulating as the male is winged and the female wingless. It is notorious that bees express certain emotions, as of anger, by the tone of their humming, and according to H. Mueller, the males of some species make a peculiar singing noise whilst pursuing the females. Order Coleoptera beetles many beetles are colored so as to resemble the surfaces which they habitually frequent and they thus escape detection by their enemies other species for instance diamond beetles are ornamented with splendid colors which are often arranged in stripes spots crosses and other elegant patterns such colors can hardly serve directly as a protection except in the case of certain flower feeding species but they may serve as a warning or means of recognition on the same principle as the phosphorescence of the glowworm. As with beetles, the colors of the two sexes are generally alike, we have no evidence that they have been gained through sexual selection. But this is at least possible, for they have been developed in one sex and then transferred to the other, and this view is even in some degree probable in those groups which possess other well-marked secondary sexual characters. Blind beetles, which cannot, of course, behold each other's beauty, never, as I hear from Mr. Waterhouse, Jr., exhibit bright colors, though they often have polished coats, but the explanation of their obscurity may be that they generally inhabit caves and other obscure stations. Some longicorns, especially certain prionidae, offer an exception to the rule that the sexes of beetles do not differ in color. Most of these insects are large and splendidly colored. The males in the genus Pyrodes, which I saw in Mr. Bates' collection, are generally redder, but rather duller, than the females, the latter being colored of a more or less splendid golden green. On the other hand, in one species, the male is golden green, the female being richly tinted with red and purple. Pyrodes pulcherimus, in which the sexes differ conspicuously, has been described by Mr. Bates. I will specify the few other cases in which I have heard of a difference in the color between the sexes of beetles. Kirby and Spence mention Acantheris, Meloa, Regium, and the Leptura testacea. 
the male of the latter being testaceous with a black thorax and the female of a dull red all over these two latter beetles belong to the family of longicorns Messrs. R. Trimmon and Waterhouse, Jr. inform me of two lamellicorns, that is, a paratrichia and tricheus, the male of the latter being more obscurely coloured than the female. In Tillis elongatus, the male is black, and the female always, as it is believed, of a dark blue colour with a red thorax. The male also of Orsodacna atra, as I hear from Mr. Walsh, is black, the female, the so-called O. ruficollis, having a rufous thorax. In the genus Esmeralda, the sexes differ so greatly in colour that they have been ranked as distinct species. In one species, both are of a beautiful shining green, but the male has a red thorax. On the whole, as far as I could judge, the females of those prionidae in which the sexes differ are coloured more richly than the males, and this does not accord with the common rule in regard to colour when acquired through sexual selection. A most remarkable distinction between the sexes of many beetles is presented by the great horns which rise from the head, thorax, and clypeus of the males, and in some few cases from the under-surface of the body. These horns in the great family of the lamellicorns resemble those of various quadrupeds, such as stags, rhinoceroses, etc., and are wonderful both from their size and diversified shapes. Instead of describing them, I have given figures of the males and females of some of the more remarkable forms. The females generally exhibit rudiments of the horns in the form of small knobs or ridges, but some are destitute of even the slightest rudiment. On the other hand, the horns are nearly as well developed in the female as in the male Phineas lancifer, and only a little less well developed in the females of some other species of this genus and of copris. I am informed by Mr. Bates that the horns do not differ in any manner corresponding with the more important characteristic differences between the several subdivisions of the family. Thus, within the same section of the genus Onthophagus, there are species which have a single horn, and others which have two. In almost all cases, the horns are remarkable from their excessive variability, so that a graduated series can be formed from the most highly developed males to others so degenerate that they can barely be distinguished from the females. Mr. Walsh found that in Phineas carnifex the horns were thrice as long in some males as in others. Mr. Bates, after examining above a hundred males of Onthophagus rangifer, thought he had at last discovered a species in which the horns did not vary, but further research proved the contrary. The extraordinary size of the horns, and their widely different structure in closely allied forms, indicate that they have been formed for some purpose but their excessive variability in the males of the same species leads to the inference that this purpose cannot be of a definite nature. The horns do not show marks of friction, as if used for any ordinary work. Some authors suppose that as the males wander about much more than the females, they require horns as a defense against their enemies. But as the horns are often blunt, they do not seem well adapted for defense. The most obvious conjecture is that they are used by the males for fighting together, but the males have never been observed to fight nor could Mr. Bates, after a careful examination of numerous species, find any sufficient evidence in their mutilated or broken condition of their having been thus used. If the males had been habitual fighters, the size of their bodies would probably have been increased through sexual selection so as to have exceeded that of the females. But Mr. Bates, after comparing the two sexes in above a hundred species of the copridae, did not find any marked difference in this respect amongst the well-developed individuals. In Lethrus, moreover, a beetle belonging to the same great division of the lamellicorns, the males are known to fight, but are not provided with horns, though their mandibles are much larger than those of the female. The conclusion that the horns have been acquired as ornaments is that which best agrees with the fact of their having been so immensely, yet not fixedly, developed, 
as shown by their extreme variability in the same species, and by their extreme diversity in closely allied species. This view will at first appear extremely improbable, but we shall hereafter find, with many animals standing much higher in the scale, namely fishes, amphibians, reptiles, and birds, that various kinds of crests, knobs, horns, and combs have been developed, apparently for this sole purpose. The males of Oneidas versifer and of some other species of the genus are furnished with singular projections on their anterior femora, and with a great fork or pair of horns on the lower surface of the thorax. Judging from other insects, these may aid the male in clinging to the female. Although the males have not even a trace of a horn on the upper surface of the body, yet the females plainly exhibit a rudiment of a single horn on the head, and of a crest on the thorax. That the slight thoracic crest in the female is a rudiment of a projection proper to the male, though entirely absent in the male of this particular species, is clear. For the female of Bubis bison, a genus which comes next to Oneidas, has a similar slight crest on the thorax, and the male bears a great projection in the same situation. So again there can hardly be a doubt that the little point on the head of the female Oneidas versifer, as well as on the head of the females of two or three allied species, is a rudimentary representative of the cephalic horn, which is common to the males of so many lamellicorn beetles, as in Phineas. The old belief that rudiments have been created to complete the scheme of nature is here so far from holding good that we have a complete inversion of the ordinary state of things in the family. We may reasonably suspect that the males originally bore horns and transferred them to the females in a rudimentary condition, as in so many other lamellicorns. Why the males subsequently lost their horns we know not, but this may have been caused through the principle of compensation, owing to the development of the large horns and projections on the lower surface, and as these are confined to the males, the rudiments of the upper horns on the females would not have been thus obliterated. The cases hitherto given refer to the lamellicorns, but the males of some few other beetles, belonging to two widely distinct groups, namely the Curculionidae and Staphylinidae, are furnished with horns, in the former on the lower surface of the body, in the latter on the upper surface of the head and thorax. In the Staphylinidae, the horns of the males are extraordinarily variable in the same species, just as we have seen with the lamellicorns. In Cyagonium we have a case of dimorphism, for the males can be divided into two sets, differing greatly in the size of their bodies and in the development of their horns, without intermediate gradations. In a species of Bledius, also belonging to the Staphylinidae, Professor Westwood states that male specimens can be found in the same locality, in which the central horn of the thorax is very large, but the horns of the head quite rudimental, and others in which the thoracic horn is much shorter, whilst the protuberances on the head are long. In the British Museum I noticed one male specimen of Cyagonium in an intermediate condition, so that the dimorphism is not strict. Here we apparently have a case of compensation, which throws light on that just given of the supposed loss of the upper horns by the males of Oneidas. Law of Battle Some male beetles, which seem ill-fitted for fighting, nevertheless engage in conflicts for the possession of the females. Mr. Wallace saw two males of Leptorhynchus angustatus, a linear beetle with a much elongated rostrum, fighting for a female, who stood close by busy at her boring. They pushed at each other with their rostra and clawed and thumped, apparently in the greatest rage. The smaller male, however, soon ran away, acknowledging himself vanquished. In some few cases, male beetles are well adapted for fighting by possessing great-toothed mandibles much larger than those of the females. 
This is the case with the common stag beetle, Lucanus cervus, the males of which emerge from the pupal state about a week before the other sex, so that several may often be seen pursuing the same female. At this season they engage in fierce conflicts. When Mr. A. H. Davis enclosed two males with one female in a box, the larger male severely pinched the smaller one until he resigned his pretensions. A friend informs me that when a boy he often put the males together to see them fight, and he noticed that they were much bolder and fiercer than the females, as with the higher animals. The males would seize hold of his finger if held in front of them, but not so the females, although they have stronger jaws. The males of many of the Lucanidae, as well as of the above-mentioned Leptorhynchus, are larger and more powerful insects than the females. The two sexes of Lethrus cephalodes, one of the lamellicorns, inhabit the same burrow, and the male has larger mandibles than the female. If, during the breeding season, a strange male attempts to enter the burrow, he is attacked. The female does not remain passive, but closes the mouth of the burrow and encourages her mate by continually pushing him on from behind, and the battle lasts until the aggressor is killed or runs away. The two sexes of another lamellicorn beetle, the Atucus cicatricosis, live in pairs and seem much attached to each other. The male excites the females to roll the balls of dung in which the ova are deposited, and if she is removed, he becomes much agitated. If the male is removed, the female ceases all work, and, as Monsieur Brulery believes, would remain on the same spot until she died. The great mandibles of the male Lucanidae are extremely variable both in size and structure, and in this respect resemble the horns on the head and thorax of many male lamellicorns and staphylinidae. A perfect series can be formed from the best provided to the worst provided or degenerate males. Although the mandibles of the common stag beetle, and probably of many other species, are used as efficient weapons for fighting, it is doubtful whether their great size can thus be accounted for. We have seen that they are used by the Lucanus elaphus of North America for seizing the female. As they are so conspicuous and so elegantly branched, and as owing to their great length they are not well adapted for pinching, the suspicion has crossed my mind that they may in addition serve as an ornament, like the horns on the head and thorax of the various species above described. The male Chiasonathus grantii of South Chile, a splendid beetle belonging to the same family, has enormously developed mandibles. He is bold and pugnacious. When threatened, he faces round, opens his great jaws, and at the same time stridulates loudly. But the mandibles were not strong enough to pinch my finger so as to cause actual pain. Sexual selection, which implies the possession of considerable perceptive powers and of strong passions, seems to have been more effective with the lamellicorns than with any other family of beetles. With some species the males are provided with weapons for fighting. Some live in pairs and show mutual affection. Many have the power of stridulating when excited. Many are furnished with the most extraordinary horns, apparently for the sake of ornament. And some, which are diurnal in their habits, are gorgeously colored. Lastly, several of the largest beetles in the world belong to this family, which was placed by Linnaeus and Fabricius as the head of the order. Stridulating Organs Beetles belonging to many and widely distinct families possess these organs. The sound thus produced can sometimes be heard at the distance of several feet or even yards, but it is not comparable with that made by the orthoptera. The rasp generally consists of a narrow, slightly raised surface crossed by very fine parallel ribs, sometimes so fine as to cause iridescent colors, and having a very elegant appearance under the microscope. 
In some cases, as with typhius, minute bristly or scale-like prominences, with which the whole surrounding surface is covered in approximately parallel lines, could be traced passing into the ribs of the rasp. The transition takes place by their becoming confluent and straight, and at the same time more prominent and smooth. A hard ridge on the adjoining part of the body serves as the scraper for the rasp, but this scraper in some cases has been specially modified for the purpose. It is rapidly moved across the rasp, or conversely the rasp across the scraper. These organs are situated in widely different positions. In the carrion beetles, Necrophorus, two parallel rasps stand on the dorsal surface of the fifth abdominal segment, each rasp consisting of 126 to 140 fine ribs. These ribs are scraped across the posterior margins of the elytra, a small portion of which projects beyond the general outline. In many Cryoceridae, and in Clithra quadripunctata, one of the Chrysomelidae, and in some Tenebrionidae, the rasp is seated on the dorsal apex of the abdomen, on the pygidium or propygidium, and is scraped in the same manner by the elytra. I am greatly indebted to Mr. G. R. Crotch for having sent me many prepared specimens of various beetles belonging to these three families and to others, as well as for valuable information. He believes that the power of stridulation in the clithra has not been previously observed. I am also much indebted to Mr. E. W. Jansen for information and specimens. I may add that my son, Mr. F. Darwin, finds that Dermestes marina stridulates, but he searched in vain for the apparatus. Scolitis has lately been described by Dr. Chapman as a stridulator. In Heteroceras, which belongs to another family, the rasps are placed on the sides of the first abdominal segment and are scraped by ridges on the femora. In certain Curculionidae and Carabidae, the parts are completely reversed in position, for the rasps are seated on the inferior surface of the elytra, near their apices or along the outer margins, and the edges of the abdominal segments serve as the scrapers. Westring has described the stridulating organs in these two, as well as in other families. In the Carabidae, I have examined Elaphrus uliginosus and Blethisa multipunctata, sent to me by Mr. Crotch. In Blethisa, the transverse ridges on the furrowed border of the abdominal segment do not, as far as I could judge, come into play in scraping the rasps on the elytra. In Pelobius hermini, one of the Dyticidae or water beetles, a strong ridge runs parallel and near to the sutural margin of the elytra, and is crossed by ribs, coarse in the middle part, but becoming gradually finer at both ends, especially at the upper end. When this insect is held under water or in the air, a stridulating noise is produced by the extreme horny margin of the abdomen being scraped against the rasps. In a great number of longhorn beetles, Longicornia, the organs are situated quite otherwise, the rasp being on the mesothorax, which is rubbed against the prothorax. Landois counted 238 very fine ribs on the rasp of Cerambix heros. Many lamellicorns have the power of stridulating, and the organs differ greatly in position. Some species stridulate very loudly, so that when Mr. F. Smith caught a trox sabulosus, a gamekeeper who stood by thought he had caught a mouse. But I failed to discover the proper organs in this beetle. In Geotrupes and Typhius, a narrow ridge runs obliquely across the coxa of each hind leg, having in G. stercorarius 84 ribs, which is scraped by a specially projecting part of one of the abdominal segments. In the nearly allied Copris lunaris, an excessively narrow fine rasp runs along the sutural margin of the elytra, with another short rasp near the basal outer margin. But in some other coprini, the rasp is seated, according to Leconte, on the dorsal surface of the abdomen. 
In Oryctes, it is seated on the propygidium, and according to the same entomologist in some other dynastony, on the undersurface of the elytra. Lastly, Westring states that in Omaloplia brunia, the rasp is placed on the prosternum, and the scraper on the metasternum, the parts thus occupying the undersurface of the body, instead of the upper surface, as in the longicorns. We thus see that in the different coleopterous families, the stridulating organs are wonderfully diversified in position, but not much in structure. Within the same family, some species are provided with these organs, and others are destitute of them. This diversity is intelligible if we suppose that originally various beetles made a shuffling or hissing noise by the rubbing together of any hard and rough parts of their bodies which happened to be in contact, and that from the noise thus produced being in some way useful, the rough surfaces were gradually developed into regular stridulating organs. Some beetles, as they move, now produce, either intentionally or unintentionally, a shuffling noise, without possessing any proper organs for the purpose. Mr. Wallace informs me that the Euchirus longimanus, a lamellicorn with the anterior legs wonderfully elongated in the male, makes whilst moving a low hissing sound by the protrusion and contraction of the abdomen, and when seized it produces a grating sound by rubbing its hind legs against the edges of the elytra. The hissing sound is clearly due to a narrow rasp running along the sutural margin of each elytron, and I could likewise make the grating sound by rubbing the chagrin surface of the femur against the granulated margin of the corresponding elytron. But I could not here detect any proper rasp, nor is it likely that I could have overlooked it in so large an insect. After examining Cicris, and reading what Westring has written about this beetle, it seems very doubtful whether it possesses any true rasp, though it has the power of emitting a sound. From the analogy of the orthoptera and homoptera, I expected to find the stridulating organs in the coleoptera differing according to sex. But Landois, who has carefully examined several species, observed no such difference. Nor did Westring, nor did Mr. G. R. Crotch in preparing the many specimens which he had the kindness to send me. Any difference in these organs, if slight, would, however, be difficult to detect on account of their great variability. Thus, in the first pair of specimens of Necrophorus humator, and of Pilobius, which I examined, the rasp was considerably larger in the male than in the female, but not so with the succeeding specimens. In Geotrupes stercorarius, the rasp appeared to me thicker, opaquer, and more prominent in three males than in the same number of females. In order, therefore, to discover whether the sexes differed in their power of stridulating, my son, Mr. F. Darwin, collected fifty-seven living specimens, which he separated into two lots, according as they made a greater or lesser noise when held in the same manner. He then examined all these specimens, and found that the males were very nearly in the same proportion to the females in both the lots. Mr. F. Smith has kept alive numerous specimens of Mononychus pseudocori, Curculionidae, and is convinced that both sexes stridulate, and apparently in an equal degree. Nevertheless, the power of stridulating is certainly a sexual character in some few coleoptera. Mr. Crotch discovered that the males alone of two species of Heliopathes, Tenebrionidae, possess stridulating organs. I examined five males of H. gibbous, and in all these there was a well-developed rasp, partially divided into two, on the dorsal surface of the terminal abdominal segment, whilst in the same number of females there was not even a rudiment of the rasp, the membrane of this segment being transparent and much thinner than in the male. In H. cribratostriatus, the male has a similar rasp, excepting that it is not partially divided into two portions. 
and the female is completely destitute of this organ. The male, in addition, has on the apical margins of the elytra, on each side of the suture, three or four short longitudinal ridges, which are crossed by extremely fine ribs parallel to and resembling those on the abdominal rasp. Whether these ridges serve as an independent rasp, or as a scraper for the abdominal rasp, I could not decide. The female exhibits no trace of the latter structure. Again, in three species of the lamellicorn genus Oryctes, we have a nearly parallel case. In the females of O. griffis and Nasocornis, the ribs on the rasp of the propagidium are less continuous and less distinct than in the males. But the chief difference is that the whole upper surface of this segment, when held in the proper light, is seen to be clothed with hairs, which are absent or represented by excessively fine down in the males. It should be noticed that in all coleoptera, the effective part of the rasp is destitute of hairs. In O. senegalensis, the difference between the sexes is more strongly marked, and this is best seen when the proper abdominal segment is cleaned and viewed as a transparent object. In the female, the whole surface is covered with little separate crests bearing spines, whilst in the male, these crests, in proceeding toward the apex, become more and more confluent, regular, and naked, so that three-fourths of the segment is covered with extremely fine parallel ribs, which are quite absent in the female. In the females, however, of all three species of Erictes, a slight grating or stridulating sound is produced when the abdomen of a softened specimen is pushed backward and forward. In the case of the Heliopathes and Oryctes, there can hardly be a doubt that the males stridulate in order to call or excite the females. But with most beetles, the stridulation apparently serves both sexes as a mutual call. Beetles stridulate under various emotions in the same manner as birds use their voices for many purposes besides singing to their mates. The great Chiazonathus stridulates in anger or defiance. Many species do the same from distress or fear if held so that they cannot escape. By striking the hollow stems of trees in the Canary Islands, Messrs. Wollaston and Crotch were able to discover the presence of beetles belonging to the genus Acales by their stridulation. Lastly, the male Etuchus stridulates to encourage the female in her work, and from distress when she is removed. Some naturalists believe that beetles make this noise to frighten away their enemies, but I cannot think that a quadruped or bird able to devour a large beetle would be frightened by so slight a sound. The belief that the stridulation serves as a sexual call is supported by the fact that death ticks, Anobium tessellatum, are well known to answer each other's ticking, and as I have myself observed, a tapping noise artificially made. Mr. Doubleday also informs me that he has sometimes observed a female ticking, and in an hour or two afterward has found her united with a male, and on one occasion surrounded by several males. According to Mr. Doubleday, the noise is produced by the insect raising itself on its legs as high as it can, and then striking its thorax five or six times in rapid succession against the substance upon which it is sitting. Olivier says that the female of Pymelia striata produces a rather loud sound by striking her abdomen against any hard substance, and that the male, obedient to this call, soon attends her, and they pair. Finally, it is probable that the two sexes of many kinds of beetles were at first enabled to find each other by the slight shuffling noise produced by the rubbing together of the adjoining hard parts of their bodies, and that as those males or females which made the greatest noise succeeded best in finding partners, rugosities on various parts of their bodies were gradually developed, by means of sexual selection, into true stridulating organs. End of section 9